Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode of Three Spooked Squirrels. I mean, <laughs> girls. You're welcome, Ron. Uh, <laughs> which is one of your hosts, Jessica. And as you can tell, I'm joined by my very giggly friend, Tara. Hey, Spooksters. I can't help it. That picture was fucking amazing and made me laugh for so fucking long. So, Ross, I appreciate you. <laughs> Every time I turned on, like, any social media, it would, like, pop up. I was like, this is the most <laughs> amazing thing. Oh, God, yeah. Well, if you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. I feel like we're on a goofy path right now, so. A little bit. <laughs> Let's get down to the business. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that probably everyone has been like, when are they going to talk about it? Mm -hmm. When are you going to talk about it? It's the most famous place ever. Where are you going to talk about it? (laughs) We are going to be talking about the Stanley Hotel. Yes, we are. And yeah, we've definitely gotten those messages be like, uh, did I miss this episode? No, it is here now. <laughs> like, it's not even like people just assumed we had done it. They're like, mm, you seem like you're kind of together, girls. So you must have done this. I'm just missing it. I'm like, nope, <laughs> we haven't done it. <laughs> we waited. We waited. <laughs> we waited. Well, before we get down to the business of talking about the Stanley Hotel, let's take care of our business and then we'll take a short promo break and then get down to it. You can find us on all of the social medias. That's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I don't know what else. Those are the ones I know. If there's more out there that I don't know about, I can't learn. It's too old. Pinterest. We are also on Pinterest. (laughs) Pinterest. We are on Pinterest. (laughs) In fact, I am on our Pinterest currently. (laughs) But if you want to hang out with us and kind of chat with Tara and I, we hang out in the Facebook group a lot. There are some really great things going over there. It's just a place where we've put some fun stuff, like where you can post pictures of your animals, funny memes. You can bring up topics. We discuss kind of current cases Mm -hmm. when there's like a shareable Facebook story. People put those in there as well. So it's a great place for everyone, like all of our listeners and us to interact. If you want to do that, head over to Facebook and it is a group called Three Spooked Girls Official. We do have a like page. Gives you some notifications. I don't know. I don't check that. I do the social medias, but yeah, we have a like page. Basically, that's a great place to DM us suggestions. Uh, We do appreciate getting case and topic suggestions. The only thing is with putting them in the group, they do get lost rather quickly. So if it's something you'd like to suggest, please do message the like page. If you're already on Facebook, you can email us. Instagram DMs are always open. But yeah, like page is there. It's pretty similar feed to the Instagram for the most part. Besides our selfies, I only keep them on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And speaking of Instagram, we do have an Instagram for the show. That Twitter and Facebook is all at Three Spooked Girls. If you head over to our Instagram, you can find some really helpful little things that Tara has put up there, which will direct you to pretty much everywhere. There's a link to our link tree, which is also in the show notes, which could take you anywhere, including our Patreon. Now, we talk a lot about patrons on this show because we're so, so grateful for Mm -hmm. the hundred plus people at this point who have just decided they want to support the show. And Tara and I are just, I don't even think blown away is the word to, it's not even like the phrase to use. Like we can't fathom this and we're so grateful and we're so thankful for the support that you guys have given us. And we just want to keep continuing to do fun and great work for you guys. If you head over there, if you want to be a patron for little as a dollar, you get a bonus episode, $2 and up, get Jessica Slaughter's movie reviews. And if you're a $5 and up patron, I have the pleasure of handing it over to Tara to talk to you about something amazing. Yes. So since we hit the milestone of 100 patrons, we decided let's add in one more thing of content for our five and up peeps over there. So that means they're literally getting bonus content four times a month. So unless it's like an extra long month, that's pretty much every week. This video segment, I'm going to go ahead and announce what it's called. It is called Haunted Grounds. 
basically what's going to happen over there is it's going to be haunted objects. It may bleed into other paranormal topics eventually if I run out of haunted items. (laughs) But I think they're really fascinating. And when we do paranormal, we don't really do haunted topics too much. So I thought it'd be a fun side spin. But it is going to be in video with Jessica and I. And that'll drop once a month for y'all. When we went through the list of names, we took inspiration from Ashley's suggestion. She suggested Spooky Grounds. But since it is haunted items, I went with Haunted Grounds because I'm also bringing a coffee recommendation as well each month. And I am so excited. And I don't know if it will be done yet or not, but I'm working with Mackenzie on a cute little logo for it. Jessica and I saw the sketch today. It is amazing. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to share that with you guys. But that will be dropping actually this Friday from when you're hearing it. So the end of this week, the first episode of Haunted Grounds will be on Patreon for you guys. So if you would like to watch that, you just have to head over to our Patreon and starting at the $5 tier, that will get you access to that. And you get all kinds of other cool stuff too. Exciting. And with the different tiers, there's different swag opportunities. Our very first round of t-shirts for our $25 and up patrons have been sent out and they look fantastic and I love them. Not just saying because I designed it, but because (laughs) it's really cool and I love it. So I'm just pumped with all the stuff we got going on. I know. Lots of good things. Lots of good things. And all thanks to you guys. Well, before we move on to our little promo break, Kate has picked a drink. Now, we talked about it. We were going to go like turn of the century, turn of the like the 20th century drinks. But in our Pinterest scrolling through, we found a cocktail called the Colorado Bulldog Cocktail. And according to this recipe, it's five ingredients, five minutes, and only 110 calories. I'm here for that. It has vodka, coffee liqueur, cream, like coffee creamer, Mm -hmm. and one ounce of Coke. And they mean the drink, people. Calm yourselves. (laughs) And chocolate syrup is optional. But, you know, not in my life. Chocolate syrup is never optional. True. Now we're going to take a quick promo break and then we'll be back and I'm going to tell you all about the Stanley history and then Tara's going to tell you about the spooky things. We'll be right back right after this promo break. Do you read books? Do you live by small bodies of water surrounded by trees and other wildlife? Is that geese shit? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you have found a home here at the Brook Reading Podcast. Each week I read a book while nestled in my small New Jersey apartment and gaze out the window at a brook. Then I jump online, talk about it, ask for your opinions, and bitch about something for approximately five minutes. If you would like to join this madness, check out the Brook Reading Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or on the Radio Public app. Let's step into some animal feces together. There's a feeling we get when passing ghost stories around a fire or sharing legends of fantastical beasts, both amazing and terrifying. The mere mention of the otherworldly beings that surround us are enough to make even the bravest amongst us shudder with fear. But these stories are as essential to our cultures as the languages we speak and the food we share. These fables of the unknown have become an integral part of our history and the foundation of our society today. And as frightening as these creatures might seem, we cannot help but wonder what they are and where they come from. Stories of the supernatural, whether of spirit or beast, will always find a home within our minds. For nothing haunts us more than that which we cannot explain. Hello, my name is MJ McAdams, part-time shadow person, full-time supernatural seeker. Welcome to Humble Hauntings, where the lovers of the unknown can pull up a seat and make themselves at home. I invite you to join me on a quest to explore the supernatural creatures that have bound themselves to our history and unveil the world's most heart-stopping haunts 
Ponce, that could be as close as your front door. Because after all, home is where the haunt is. Well, welcome back from that promo break. We hope you had fun. Like I said earlier, I'm going to tell you about the history of the Stanley, and then I'm going to hand it over to Tara, and she's going to talk about the things that are spooky at the Stanley. Mm-hmm. So, according to archaeologists, yeah, we're going back that far, people. Jessica did the big girl research this time. <laughs> and according to the archaeologists, the area in which the Stanley is located is very like a seasonal basis, meaning that people are only going to live there during certain parts of the year. If you're from Colorado, because that's where the Stanley Hotel is, um, you probably know that it gets really cold in the winter. Do you confirm? <laughs> yes, I do. I lived there for five years, for people who don't know. <laughs> wow, five years. That was crazy. So, like tens of thousands of years, like before, you know, westward expansion, Native Americans basically lived through there seasonally. And it was home to the wandering tribes of the Ute and the Arapaho nations. Up until the late 1700s, the Utes dominated the mountain range to the west, and the territory got, like, around there was being shared with the Arapaho, the Comanche, and the Shoshone. The Shoshun? I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong. You know I, I'm horrible at pronouncing things. I'm so sorry. And some roving bands of Apache. This area of land would later become known as the Estes Park. And the park is referred to the fact that the mountain had like an upland valley. So basically, like when you go into like a little town where it's like surrounded by mountains and there's like a flat area, but it's lower. That's kind of what I I liken it to. And it was named Estes Park by William Breyer, who is the founder of the Rocky Mountain News. He was the editor and founder. He named it that to honor the first permanent Anglo residence, a Kentucky man by the name of Joel Estes and his wife, Patsy, which is kind of nice. But Breyer didn't stay very long because, like I said, the winters are hard. And the Estes' family didn't stay either. They left in 1866 in search of a more temperate place so they could raise their cattle because they were cattle ranchers. And very soon after that, the Homestead Act began, which is basically like what the United States was doing was allowing people to come in during a certain time and claim up to like 160 acres of land. And they basically just had to make what they would call like mild improvements. They could put like four logs up and say, look, I'm building a cabin and they would get the deed or the title to the land. Now, enter one Irish Earl by the name of Lord Dunraven. And basically, he came into the area in 1872 on a hunting trip and was like, oh, my God, guys, this place is beautiful. I'm just going to steal it because that's basically what the motherfucker did. He even has a villain last name, Jesus. (laughs) Dunraven. (laughs) No offense to any of his descendants. No. (laughs) He was kind of a scoundrel. Basically, what he did is he did kind of illegal homesteading, which is that he would have people from like Denver come in and do the homesteading for him, get the deed and title to the land, and then he would buy it off them for like some sources of like he purchased it for fair prices and other people were like, he basically stole that shit. Let's be real. Right. And my favorite is the description of these people he would hire. They were like the rabble rousers, everyone called them. The rabble rousers from Denver. I'm like, what kind of crowd was this? (laughs) So he ended up acquiring about 6,000 acres in Colorado. Wow. He was not well liked by anyone, especially the indigenous tribes, because he was basically like they were getting shoved out, but he was also cheating. Mm. And then other like white settlers in the area didn't like him because they felt he was cheating because the motherfucker was cheating. Yeah. He basically was not well liked by his neighbors. But in America in the early 1900s, a tuberculosis outbreak broke out and affected a lot of Americans. And this hit a lot on the East Coast. And enter one Freeland Oscar Stanley. 
This is his description. He is a Yankee inventor, and he invented the Stanley Steamer. And if you are from anywhere near me, the first thing that pops into your head is Stanley Steamer gets your carpets cleaner. (laughs) Not that dude. Not him. He was uh, an inventor of the Stanley Motor Carriage Company, and he owned that with his twin brother, Francis. He, I should say he founded it because they made their money in a photographic plates manufacturing company, which they ended up selling to another company called Eastman Kodak Company, which is now what we know as Kodak, which is very, I don't know, maybe Gen Z's out there, like, what is that? It's like when you used to get the film, canister. <laughs> shake, shake. You know what? What? Speaking of that kind of film you have to develop, I saw, remember, like, cameras that had it, the disposable cameras? Mm-hmm. I saw those at Target the other day. I was like, what the fuck? They better come back, because I loved those. They were awesome. I had one that had, like, inspirational quotes on them. Aw. So when you would, like, develop it, it would say, like, an inspirational quote <laughs> at the bottom. And it sounds cute, except for when I didn't know, like, if you turned it portrait instead of landscape. It would just go down the side. It would be weird. So like part of my picture was cut off because I thought it was going to be smart to be at the bottom. It was not. Boo. Anyway, so they made a lot of money by selling this and then they founded Stanley Motor Carriage Company. They basically, it was a steam engine and they, you know, had dealings with Ford and all these different people. And in 1903, at the age of 55, Freeland, who from now on I'm just going to refer to as Stanley. Oh, and by the way, like if you're trying to picture what this kind of car looked like, picture Stanley from the movie Cars. It's his car. Which I kind of like, too, because then it's like when you think about the movie Cars and there's like that hotel up in the like the in the mountains. I'm like, oh, my God, it's the story. <laughs> but not the story. And Stanley was a very conservative man. He was a Calvinist, which was like a Protestant Reformation in Scotland. So think like Queen of Scots, like when people tried to take over her kingdom. That's who these people were. It was a very Protestant view versus Catholic. He didn't smoke or drink, and he wasn't very outwardly vocal about his religious or political affiliations. So he's just like your middle of your row rich dude from the East Coast. He's from Maine and Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. In 1903, at the age of 55, he caught tuberculosis. And how they treated that was that he would need fresh, dry air, lots of sunlight, and a hearty diet. When Stanley was diagnosed with tuberculosis, he was told not to make plans beyond six months. Oof. But because he was rich, it lent him to some good health care. And his doctor was like, dude, I got this cabin out in the Rocky Mountains. You got cars. Well, actually, he drove out. He went by train and then his car was shipped to him. You could go out there and get lots of fresh air because it'll be wonderful. So Freeland or Stanley with his wife, Flora, went out to Colorado, essentially. And they fell in love with the area, which had become to known Estes Park. And by the end of the summer, they had bought the land from our Lord Dunraven, which was good because I think, in fact, this endeavor saved Stanley's life. I think it gave him purpose because by 1907, Stanley had fully recovered. And that year he started construction on or the beginning of a 48 room grand hotel. It would cater to the moderately wealthy urbanites. So like basically his besties back on the East Coast. He was literally building a resort out in Colorado for his rich friends. I mean, let's be honest. Like, if we had the money, we'd build, like, a place just for us. Oh, yeah. But he was smarter than us because he was like, I can make money off of this. Um, And some people would come and stay, like, the weekend. And some people, like, when they were passing through to go to the East Coast. Because this is also, like, train travel was a big, like, how people cross the country. Mm. And the hotel was built in a colonial Georgian revival style. It's very beautiful. (laughs) Lots of verandas. Mm -hmm. In 1909, the main hotel and concert hall were completed, and it opened that year. I think that Stanley and his wife were probably a real frickin' hoot, because on the opening day, Stanley, his wife, the bus driver, and one other dude had a little bit of fun. What they did is the bus driver picked people up in a town called Lyons. And the bus was a special motorized steam-powered vehicle that they called the mountain wagons that carried guests from the train station to the hotel and, like, surrounding area. And it could seat 12, so that was a big deal because it was big. And so this bus driver of this mountain wagon is driving, and they're like, oh, look over there. And they see this bear stand up. Everyone on there is, like, from frickin' Boston, and they're like, what the fuck is that shit? Like, that's that's a bear, you know? <laughs> like, they'd seen pictures or a zoo, but, like, it's a real bear. <laughs> 
and the bear starts charging at the car and the bus driver pulls out a gun and shoots the bear. The bear falls down a little dramatically and they drive on. And they basically get to the hotel and everyone's laughing about it because it's a prank. Because in the bear suit is a man and it's a friend of Stanley and his wife, Flora. <laughs> and they had played this prank on people because they knew the people coming. It's very like Disney Jungle Cruise. <laughs> I was like, when I was reading that, I was like, kind of nonsense is this from the billionaires of early America? <laughs> in 1910, the Stanley Manor would be completed. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And here's the thing about the Stanley Hotel in this area. Well, mainly at first, he wasn't going to call it the Stanley Hotel. He was going to call it the Dunraven Hotel. And everyone else around him was like, nobody like him. If you name it, nobody's coming to your place. And they were like, they should name it after you. And he was like, okay. <laughs> Like, that's kind of how it fell into it. But here's the thing. Stanley spent more money than he made because really it was just about accommodating his friends. And they would say that he would roll out from the East Coast in the spring with a lot of cash in his pocket. And then when he would leave, he'd pay all the bills and probably be in debt and go back. Like, he had the money. It just wasn't with him type thing. Right. Mm -hmm. At this point in time, it was seasonal. So basically, he ran his hotel like it was his pastime, not his business adventure. The Stanley Hotel is five miles from the Rocky Mountain National Park. It's about 10, 15 minutes drive. It's 40 miles from Boulder, Colorado, and it's 70 miles from Denver, Colorado. The street address is 333 Wonder View Avenue, Estes Park, Colorado, 80517. And it has panoramic views of like Estes and you can see the long peak of the Rocky Mountains from it. So the architecture of the Stanley. The Stanley is actually just so that you know is registered as a historical district. It eventually would have up to 11 structures and these included the main hotel, the concert hall, the carriage house, the manager's cottage, the gatehouse, and then what is now known as the lodge, but back then was known as Stanley Manor. The Denver architect who was basically the guy who helped do this was an assistant to a very famous Denver architect. And his name, I love, the, the guy who helped design this was Henry Lord Cornwallis Rogers. I don't know. I didn't look up why his name, <laughs> his nickname was, because it's in quotes. Um, why his nickname is Lord Cornwallis. <laughs> and the contractor was another famous person in the area, and his name was Frank Kirkoff. And the three, including Stanley, got together and designed it. The main building, the concert hall, and the manor house are all still frame structured on a foundation of random rubble granite with clapboard sidings and an asphalt single or shingle roof. And I wrote rude, not roof. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, Jessica. Stanley chose originally, and this might shock you, when he originally picked it out, he picked a yellow for the side. It was an orker natural clay that was mixed with like some sort of like oxidized chemical and turned it yellow. And you're like, but it's white. We'll get there. But it had white accents and trim. The lumber came either from Denver or Arkansas, which I thought was weird. It was like, it's 70 miles away or hundreds of miles away. And obviously, they got the granite from local places, specifically from a quarry, the Big Thompson River, which I will bring up in a little bit. Also, fun fact, the hotel was electric. And they basically built a hydro plant to power it because they tried it other ways and it didn't work. So it was called the Fall River Hydro Plant. And it not only powered the Stanley Hotel, but the entire town of Estes Park. So he did good things <laughs> for the people around him. Yeah. Every single guest room had a telephone. And in the main building, every pair of rooms shared an in-suite bathroom with running water, which was a big deal for the time. And the water came from the Black Canyon Creek, which had been dammed in 1906 for this project. The design of the Stanley Hotel was to accommodate contemporary notions of hygiene and comfort. And it was inspired by a hotel in Pinehurst, North Carolina called the Carolina Hotel, which was designed by a Burton E. Taylor, who basically was the national leader in hospital design. Taylor and Stanley knew each other because they both were from Newton, Massachusetts, where they both were living at the time that Stanley was built. So that's kind of cool. The main building was laid out in accordance to accommodate the popular activities at the time. And it was of the upper class of Americans. So whatever they were into, which kind of divided men and women into two specific areas. So there was a music room which had picture windows that could 
open and it had fine plaster work with great detail and it was designed so that during the day it could be used for letter writing but at night could be used for chamber music and it was aimed at the female guests of the Stanley. And if you're like, okay, what does the dudes do? They would go into the smoking lounge, which adjoined the billiard room. And this room was had like dark stained wood, a granite arc fireplace, and obviously it was aimed at the guys. The thing is that we mentioned that like Stanley didn't drink or smoke. So this wouldn't be a place that he would, which is why they put it next to the billiard room. Because Stanley loved to play billiards. In fact, the billiard room was Stanley's favorite room at the hotel. Another fun fact is that, like we said earlier, the hotel was electric, but it wasn't all electric. It was also like electro gas because that's what was available at the time. However, the kitchen was fully electric and the laundry was full, like a full steam laundry. When it opened, it had no central heating or vent system. It was designed to have natural airflow. Now the hotel is heated BT dubs. If you want to go in the winter, you can. There was this big like paladin window at the top of the grand staircase. And basically, if it was opened, it would create a cross breeze across the lobby. Also, in a little different area, or all the French doors would open to like public places onto open verandas. So those could also bring in the cool air. It had two curving staircases that connected to the guest corridors. And this basically helped push air up into those like hallways so that it didn't get stagnant air. Within the first few years, they installed a hydraulic elevator, but it was replaced in 1935 by a cable-operated system of an elevator. In 1911, (laughs) like I said, the hotel was electric, but they needed some extra help, so they basically had like a gas lighting system installed. And on June 25th, 1911, an explosion happened. It was the day after the pipes were filled, and a maid walked into a room with a lit candle... And the room had filled up with gas. And I went, boom, she survived. She was greatly hurt, but she actually went back to work there. And a lot of the structure was damaged. At the time, the damage cost $10,000. You want to guess how much it costs today? Too much. (laughs) It is $269,888.42. Oh, man. In 1916, the East Wing was expanded to add new rooms and a new alcove for the music room. In 1921, a veranda was enclosed, so now we have a gift shop. And in 1983, they installed a service tunnel, which they cut through the granite under the hotel. So that's the main building. The concert hall is located east of the hotel and was built in 1909 and was a gift for Stanley to his wife, Flora. Because she liked music, which I think is really sweet. Yeah. It's decorated in the same manner as the music room in the hotel, and it vaguely resembles the Boston Symphony Hall. Hmm. It also had a trap door on the stage, and at one point in time also hosted the bowling alley that was on the property. Oh, fancy. Mm Mm-hmm. So now we call it the Lodge, but back then it was known as the Stanley Manor, was a smaller hotel. It was like two to three the ratio of the side of the main hotel and was completed in 1910. It was fully heated and it was made into like a bed and breakfast style. There are four main types of rooms there. There's the, at the main hotel, they're like, now there's like historic rooms with the classic furnishings. If you stay at the Lodge, it's more boutique feel, bed and breakfasty, has modern day furnishings. There's two additional buildings now that you can stay at. One is called the Aspire and it has modern apartment style rooms with kitchenettes and laundry service or facilities. And then there's the residences, which are one to three bedroom modern condos. So you could basically stay all summer at the Stanley if you wanted to. But yeah, it's expensive. In 1926, Stanley sold the property and the hotel to the Stanley Corporation, which was basically um, a corporation that was supposed to take care of his property. But because Stanley was spending more than he was making, that company quickly went bankrupt and Stanley had to buy it back in 1929, but then sold it the next year in 1930 to Roe Emery, who remained the owner until 1947. Even after the sale of the hotel, Stanley still resided in the area. Each summer, you'd go back and forth between the East Coast and Colorado, and they had a nearby cottage called the rock side in 1939 flora would have a stroke and died and she was out in colorado when that happened and they had been married 63 years at the time hmm. so that's just like the cutest thing you've ever heard 63 years i know stanley would not live long past her about a year and a half 
On October 2nd, Stanley was in uh, Newton, Massachusetts, and he died of heart failure at the age of 91. Aww. Yeah. Stanley helped incorporate the town of Estes Park, which was incorporated in 1917, and he helped pave the Big Thompson Canyon Road, which, like we talked about earlier, was where that, like, granite company was. Mm -hmm. And because he loved the area so much, he had the foresight to want to preserve the area around Estes Park, and he joined and for a time was the president of the Protection and Improvement Association in that area, and he organized and established the Fall River Fish Hatchery in 1907. And in 1937, he introduced a herd of elk to Yellowstone National Park. So he's a good guy. Mm -hmm. He was also a friend with a man named Enos Mills, who helped preserve the area. Mills ran the Longs Peak Inn, and Mills was a, an American naturalist author and homesteader. And he came to the area because he was sick and he thought he had tuberculosis or something like that. But really, he just had an allergy to wheat. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. I feel his pain. <laughs> but like, yeah. And Mills and Stanley, aided by the Sierra Club, the Daughters of the American Revolution, the American Civic Association, and the General Federation of Women's Club, which was pushed and signed into law in 1915 on January 6th to make the Rocky Mountain National Park the 10th national park in the United States. And it was 352.5 square miles. Here's a really fun fact about Mills that I just, I wanted to share, don't need to, but going to. He had died of blood poisoning because he had an infected tooth. Ooh. God. Yeah, these people needed toothbrushes mm -hmm. and not in a keto lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> but we need to get back to Roe Emery. And his name was Leroe William Emery, but he went by Roe. He was born October 31st, 1874. So he's a Halloween baby. And he died February 4th, 1954. He was an American businessman who owned many transportation company and lodges. And he expanded tourism with the national parks. And he's actually known as the father of Colorado tourism. Hmm. He owned the Stanley Hotel from 1930 to 1947. And in 1935, he painted the yellow sidings white. So that's why the hotel is now white. Fun facts about Emery. I found this guy fascinating. I left a lot of stuff out about him because there was a lot. But he actually owned a town in Montana called White Sulphur Springs. It's the county seat of Mager County. I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong. But in 2010, the population was 903 people. Wait, no, 939 people. My bad. Still tiny. You still know everyone. <laughs> yeah. And you would think, like, oh, cool. The reason I find this interesting is sulfur is actually spelled wrong. The correct spelling of sulfur, I should say the American spelling of sulfur, is S-U-L-F-U-R. But the town is spelled S-U-L-P-H-U-R. In 1914, he helped establish the Red Jammers bus tour, which is basically the first privatized bus tour or actually motor vehicle to be allowed into the national park system like the like a company. And it was the first one was into the Glacier National Park in Montana. Another fun fact about him is that his son, Walt, would go on to be one of the co-founders of the Denver Broncos. In 1946-1947, Emory sold the Stanley to the Abel Management Company, which would later become the Abel Hotel Company. So we'll get back to some owners, but let's talk about some amazing people who stayed at the Stanley Hotel. Many famous guests stayed there, including the unsinkable Molly Brown. If you don't know who she is, you need to watch the Titanic or read about the Titanic. She's basically the lady played by Kathy Bates. Yes. Teddy Roosevelt stayed there for a time. There was a German psychoanalyst who stayed there. Governor Alf London, a Republican from Kansas, stayed there in 1936 when he was running for president against Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Bob Dylan and Joan Bays, I say that wrong every time, basically stayed there on their Rolling Thunder tour. In 1994, the emperor and empress of Japan stayed there when they came to visit the States. Um, if you've ever seen the original movie Dumb and Dumber, it is actually set at the Stanley Hotel. And also in 1996, the cast and crew of The Shining would stay there because in 1974, one struggling author by the name of Stephen King stayed one night and has changed the history of it. But Tara will tell you about that later. 
Unfortunately, in the 1970s, like even though in 1977, it got put on the historical places, the National Registry, it just kind of felt like people didn't care, like the owners were like, whatever, because it, it did transfer some hands. So like I said, Freeland Stanley owned it, then the Stanley Corporation, then Freeland Stanley, then Roe Emery, then the Able Management Company owned it till like 1969. They changed their name several times in that time frame, so they're not 100% sure. In 1969, a Richard R. Holchek and Charles Hansen and Carol Hansen. Basically, they were from like Riverside and Palm Springs and they they owned it. But during this time, because it wasn't being like managed properly, it kind of fell to the wayside. But Mr. Stephen King stayed there and it inspired some stuff that Tara will talk about. And basically, it brought it back as a tourist attraction because people were like, where's this terrifying place? And he's like, the Stanley Hotel. And they're like, let's go. And then in 1995 is when the Grand Heritage Hotel Group purchased it out of bankruptcy for $3.1 million. I watched something on this guy. John Cullen is the owner. He's like John Cullen the third or fourth or something like that. They didn't have enough money to buy this thing. (laughs) They basically had to like scrimp and save and like put stuff on their credit cards and like take out loans and sell shit. But they did it. John Cullen has been in the lodging industry for 28 years, and he is the owner and operator of boutique independent hotels around the world. And basically, that's in U.S., Mexico, and the U.K., and that's who owns it now. Currently, it is 111 years old. Wow. Right. And there is 142 rooms for you to choose from if you want to stay. Prices range from 200 to 759, which doesn't surprise me if there's like a three bedroom condominium you could stay at. Like that would need to be that price. Yeah. There are some haunted rooms that Tara will talk about, but those cost a little more. There are at least three restaurants on site that I could really find out about. There's the Cascade Restaurant, the Patio, and the Whiskey Bar and Lounge. And if you're ever in the area and you want to take a tour but not stay, there is a daytime tour, which is like a historical tour, and it's $23. And then there's an evening slash night tour, which is like the haunted tours, and those are like $28. So I'm going to hand it over to Tara now to tell you all about the spooky crap that happens there. Yeah. So it kind of goes without saying that the whole hotel itself is just one giant hotbed for paranormal activity. (laughs) Like Jessica kind of hinted at, this place did inspire The Shining, an iconic Stephen King book, a movie, and also a TV miniseries as well. Different things. I wanted to start off with his experience there, and then I'll get into the haunted rooms and other entities and stuff. So in the fall of 1974, Stephen King and his wife, Tabitha, stayed the night at the Stanley. They had been living in Boulder, Colorado for a short time. It was shortly after his mother had died. And they moved back to the East Coast. Uh, They were from Maine. They moved back to Maine by 1975. So, like I said, brief. The experience they had, apart from the paranormal stuff, is something that probably a lot of people don't come across, especially now that, of course, the Stanley's, you know, year-round. So. Even in the 70s, it was still seasonal. There was a couple conflicting things. Some said this was the very last night that was open before the season ended or that they made an exception because they were supposed to close already. But like, you know, they're kind of out there. It's not because it was like, ooh, Stephen King, because nobody really knew who he was. Yeah, like he wasn't famous. Like I said, struggling author. Yes, yes, exactly. So with that, they had the like bare minimum of staff since they were getting ready to close up. So there wasn't many people there at all and there was no other guests. So they checked into room 217, which I'll get into more in a bit. They were the only people at the dinner table and it was like in the dining hall and stuff and had this like orchestra music. So I'm sure it was creepy as fuck. Stephen King has said, quote, except for our table, all the chairs were up on the tables. So the music is echoing down the hall. And I mean, it was like God had put me there to hear that and see those things, end quote. And what he was referring to is also his personal experience that he had in room 217. He said, quote, I dreamed of my three-year-old son running through the corridors, looking over his shoulder, eyes wide, screaming. He was being chased by a fire hose. I woke up with a tremendous jerk, sweating all over within an inch of falling out of bed. I got up, lit a cigarette, sat down in a chair looking out the window at the Rockies, and by the time that cigarette was done, I had the bones of the book firmly set in my mind. And, of course, that book was The Shining, which was actually just his third novel. 
And when they filmed the TV miniseries adaptation, because like I said, it's different than the movie, they actually went and filmed there at the Stanley. So that's pretty cool that they used that. But with the movie, they didn't film it there. They filmed it in studio and stuff. They did take inspiration from the Stanley, of course. But the reason the director and all that didn't want to do that was because of like lack of extra electricity and it was winter. So like the snow and all of that. So like not ideal exactly, but still like if somehow you are listening and you have not watched The Shining at least once, you need to. It is like such an iconic. I'm not surprised you haven't. But I'm saying like people who enjoy horror movies and whatnot, definitely watch it at least once. I've always meant to watch it, but I've never like I can't watch it by myself. Yeah. And no one ever wants to watch it with me because they've either <laughs> seen it and they're like, I'm done. I don't want to see it again. Or they're like way too enthusiastic. And I'm like, not you. well if it's on netflix we can have a watch party i will watch it with you so with that we're gonna scoot over into some of the hot spots in the hotel there's tons it's haunted everywhere i swear but we are gonna kick it off with 217 since that's where stephen king stayed it is haunted by a particular ghost and jessica told her backstory pretty much a little bit earlier her name is elizabeth wilson or mrs wilson She was the chief chambermaid in 1911. She was the one who got into that accident. So that night, a big storm came in and it was so strong, it knocked out the hydroelectric plant. So no power, like totally gone. So that's why she was going, she was going around and lighting the gas lamps, you know, for all the gas and stuff. And then because of that gas stuff, Jessica was talking about that was like in the rooms and stuff. And that's not going to work very well with fire and caused the huge explosion. The blast from it was actually so powerful. It knocked her through the floor of the room she was in and she went down to the McGregor room. But like Jessica said, she did survive. Both of her ankles were broken. And in some versions that I was reading, they did, of course, offer her like a hefty settlement. But she decided she just wanted a permanent job there. Like she loved working there type of thing. I would really hope she'd get like a, you know, a hefty raise because of that. She would be there an additional 40 years. And sadly, she would die on site in that same room of a heart attack. People who have stayed there have reported that items have been moved, that their luggage has been unpacked, like, you know, neither them or any of their party had done it. Lights will go on and off. And apparently she's a little old fashioned for the time she lived in. Like, obviously, this makes sense. Well, Mrs. Wilson does not like it when couples who are unmarried sleep in the same bed. So couples who are unmarried and have stayed in this room have reported feeling a cold force between them and other weird things like that when they are like lying down in bed. So she was, you know, a helpful ghost, but kind of stern on her own personal beliefs. (laughs) Now we have more haunted rooms. So the fourth floor altogether is like super haunted. There's multiple rooms that have activity. This floor was actually originally for the women employees and their children, like an attic type of situation or something, before it was converted into more guest rooms. So that's kind of cool. On this floor, first there's room 401, and this is haunted by our dear friend, Lord Dunraven. Doors are reported to open and shut on their own. It's also common for people to hear, and this is creepy, hear kids playing, giggling, and laughing, even when they're are none. Creepy, quiet, kid giggle, whisper shit. I'm not here for that. I don't like it. (laughs) That's like every horror movie. No, thank you. Absolutely freaking not. Ugh, it's always a demon, I swear. Right? Ugh, hope there's no demons there, but you know. Hangers are also noted to move on their own, and people have reported that they have the covers, like the blankets and stuff, yanked off of them in the middle of the night. And then also, apparently, the ghosts there like to play with objects in the room as well. So really, even though it terrifies me, my theory is kind of like there's maybe children's spirits there, and they're just maybe a little mischievous. Don't sound too harmful, to be honest. <laughs> Which is always really concerning because, like, the Stanleys didn't have kids. Right. But, like I said, the female employees, like, their kids could stay there. So there's that. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It could still be demons pretending to be kids. Who knows? So another room is 407. This one is noted to have a friendly ghost. There's not too much known about this entity as no one has actually ever legit seen it. They just had like other experiences. One encounter I read was that a younger boy who was staying there like with his family and stuff, he kept getting the covers kicked off him. And basically every time this happened, he would get re-tucked in. And it was like his parents weren't doing it, but they had saw he kicked it off. So it was like things like that. And other guests 
guests as well have reported of being tucked into bed or feeling like somebody is sitting on the edge of their bed. Such like a helpful ghost. Right? I know. It's like both on theme for helpful ghosts, which I'm here for. In room 413, there has been reports of a man in like 19, early 1900s clothing, like a suit type thing, and people have seen him sitting in the corner, which is creepy. And the last room I'm going to mention from this floor is room 428. And this room has a cowboy ghost. (gasps) I love cowboy ghosts. Right? People have reported hearing footsteps and also have had furniture move on its own. According to a tour guide, it's impossible logically for the furniture to like move on its own due to apparently like the slope of the building or the room or something like that. But the cowboy likes to either sit in a corner or pace the floor. There was a couple who saw him and watched him pace like the wife was watching and then went to wake up her husband and be like, oh, my God, am I really seeing this? And he was awake and saw it and was just like, what the fuck, too? And then he did what else he likes to do. And he went over to the female and gave her a kiss on the forehead. Right. And apparently many women guests have reported to waking up to him, giving them a kiss on the forehead. I mean, I wouldn't be mad at it. Right. It's like for a second, you're like, oh, God, that's kind of creepy, but it's really not. It's more like sweet. I don't know. Like so far, the ghosts at the Stanley seem to be very like either just playful or like adorable. Right. And another hot spot is somewhere Jessica talked about a little earlier. It's the concert hall. And I wasn't surprised to read this since it was Flora's and like her favorite place and all that good stuff. Her ghost is said to be in there and people hear piano or see her playing piano and things like that. There's a couple other ghosts in there as well. One is a former employee. His name is Paul. He apparently died there from a heart attack like kind of recent, like in 2005. Oh, shit. Yeah, not as long as the other ghosts. Guests have heard him say, get out, but that's more not like super rude or anything. It's more he was enforcing the curfew of the 11 p.m. they used to have at the hotel apparently or something. I don't know if that's still a thing because, you know, they do the night tour. So maybe they try to clear it out. I don't know. A construction worker said he also had a run in with Paul and he said he felt like a nudge from him when he was sanding the floors. So it may also be like that. This is my workplace kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's like Clive. Right. Exactly. And then the last entity that popped up a lot to said have been in here, her name was Lucy. They said basically they thought she was a runaway or just someone who was homeless. In life, she had been found in the basement and they actually threw her out of the hotel and she froze to death there on the grounds. (laughs) Right. How terrible. As an entity, it has been said she likes to interact with paranormal investigators and people like that who have flashlights and stuff like that. So she really responds to that kind of activity. Now, there is an area that supposedly has like a lot of weird energy and people have caught in like orbs and stuff like that. And that area is called the vortex. And basically, it's like where the staircase or staircases in the main building meet. People have just noted it as a rapid transit system for ghosts. So like I said, a vortex gateway, the name totally makes sense. And if you go to YouTube, there's a couple of videos you can watch like people that you can film your tours and stuff. And they just like they get like this weird feeling and like one dude's like kind of swaying and stuff. But he's also, I think, kind of skeptic because he's like, it was suggestion led and da 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 da. And I was like, ew, if you're going to ruin the fun, I don't want to watch you. <laughs> <laughs> But something a little bit more ill-side, apparently male ghosts are said to give women visitors extra attention, and they will do things such as stroke their hair, kiss their cheek, and run their hands on their body. So I'm assuming, like, your back. And I was just like, please don't. (laughs) (laughs) I said no. Right? No, thank you. And there's also, in the basement, there's this the little tunnel thing Jessica talked about. And honestly, it looks more like a creepy little cave. It's creepy looking. I'm sure I'll post a picture with all the social pictures and stuff. I don't want to go in there. It looks scary. So I'm going to chat a little bit about our favorite people. Ghost Adventures, of course, have been there. In this episode, Zach and his team, they meet the resident paranormal investigator. Her name is Callie. And they also meet the resident medium. And her name was Madame Vera. And it was so funny because the medium was like, you have a lot of energy. And basically, these ghosts want you to get the fuck out. They don't want you here. (laughs) 
<laughs> Yay. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. But back to the little cave thing. Callie, she was down there with them and they were talking and stuff. And they were talking about how there's a lot of quartz and limestone there under the hotel. And she was explaining that those are both good conductors of energy. And in a lot of haunted places, Either one or both or similar other like super conducive minerals, uh, crystals, whatever, that type of thing pop up in haunted places. So she's like, because there's so much of it here, she's like, I'm not surprised there is all this activity. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like amplifies it. And also, I won't go like too into their investigation stuff. Like go watch it. It'll be on the sources page. There was a version on YouTube, but it was like they tweaked with the sound, which I get copyright stuff, but whatever. But there's like a legitimate website that has the full episode that you can watch. Anyways, so (laughs) Zach actually does an interview with this girl named Bailey. She's about, I showed Jessica a picture of like during their interview because, and it'll, I'll explain why in a second. She's probably like, what, 12-ish? Yeah. Yeah, looked around that. So basically, she's very in tune with the paranormal and things like that. She said since she was like super, super young, she's like seen ghosts. And as she's gotten older, she's been able to interact with them. And I have to give it to Zach because we always joke that he acts like this big like bro bro. But he is like so nice to her. And there's just this moment when they're talking about this stuff. And, you know, he's being like, oh, yeah, I like I've been able to see stuff, too. And all this since I was young. And he says, how does your friends react to this? And she just kind of like looked at him like, what do you mean? And he's like, do your friends think like you're kind of spooky? Are they kind of scared? Do they think it's cool? That kind of thing. And she was like, none of them know. I've never told any of my friends. And he was just like, what? And he was just like, you know what? If anyone tries to give you a hard time or says you are weird or, you know, essentially bullies you or anything like that, don't let them do it. You are not weird. Like he said all this nice stuff. And I was like, oh, my God, you are human. (laughs) It was so wholesome. It was so sweet. (laughs) Tara and I were like having moments where we're like, is the bro act just like an act? Right. Is he really just like a nice human and it's all an act? I feel like it may be. I feel like it may be. But yeah, it was it was so sweet. It was so nice. I feel like kids do need role models and stuff like that. So I thought that was like a really good opportunity. And I'm glad he did that, you know. And then they were talking about all the rooms and stuff because he, you know, he was going to stay in Lord Dunraven's room. So room 401. And they were talking about the ghost. And she was like, yeah, that ghost doesn't really like me. They're like, what? What does that mean? And she's like, well, you kind of have to provoke him a little bit to get him to, you know, interact with you and things like that. And he's like, oh, okay, so you're telling me I need to provoke him then. And (laughs) you're already thinking, well, does that? That's what you were fucking going to do anyway. And she was like, yeah, you do. And he was joking. He was like, oh, God, I wouldn't do that. Like, you know, just being sarcastic or whatever. And it went right over her head. And I literally fucking cackled because she's like, oh, I do. And I was like, damn. (laughs) He's like, I have found myself a kindred spirit in this child. She torments them as well. Yeah. He was like, "Okay, I was joking. And then he was like, "Okay, so you're telling me you give me permission to do this. Like, I need to do this. And she's like, yeah, you do. And he's like, "Okay, Bailey, if you say so, I will do it. (laughs) It was so funny. But yeah, of course, they get a lot of activity in their investigations. They end up going into this, the carriage house, which is a separate room. And it was at one point a morgue and all this other stuff. And it's really creepy. And apparently they don't let the general public go there. So like the fact they let Zach go do it was a really big deal because apparently he had to like honestly twist their arm for it kind of thing. Because the paranormal investigator was like, yeah, you are lucky to be in here. She was like, we never let anybody in here. (laughs) But it's a good episode. So. So if you like Stanley Hotel stuff, if you even if you just like Ghost Adventures, definitely watch it. It's will be in the show in the sources page, so you can grab the exact season and episode, or grab the link to watch it. It was really great, but yeah, there's so much activity. I know someone who went on a tour and she had some experiences and things like that. So it's really cool, and I think pretty much everyone who goes there they kind of run into something. So really interesting. If there's anybody who's been there and has any stories, please tell us because you know we'd love to hear stories from you guys when it's topics we've covered. So definitely let us know. Definitely let us know. Thank you so much, Tara. Like, I really want to go right now. Like, I know it's COVID, but we should just go. (laughs) Maybe next summer. We'll see. (laughs) 
<laughs> we'll find out. Anyway, that's going to wrap it up for us today. Come hang out with us on socials and we will see you on Thursday for a stabby snippet. Bye. Bye. Bye.